Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating. Uh, let everyone know about this program. If you're into science, um, send them a link to the show. We really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to comment on anything you hear, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. We get to all of your comments from last week at the end of the podcast. This is a very special edition, actually, because it is Science Week, and Science Week is exploring what it means to be human. And so we are recording this show in front of a live studio audience. Yay! We practiced that earlier. They nailed it. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Brilliant reaction. Um, we are um, very excited to be in the uh, Dublin Royal Convention Centre uh, for Science Week, recording this very special episode of the programme. Uh, thank you very much to the venue and, uh, and to Science Foundation Ireland for supporting us in doing this really exciting event in which we're going to look at the greatest threats to humanity. So it's going to be a very cheery episode, right? I hope you're in good moods. You're going to leave depressed. Um, <laughs> The, we're going to look at, uh, at at this from four different angles because I, I, I've been really, really interested in in how we think about the end of, of the human race and, we, and so many other, um, so many different scientists claim that they have um, the answer of how we're going to go out. But we're, we're going to hear from four different researchers. Um, one is a volcanologist. Um, one is a, a space physicist. Uh, one is an expert in fungi, and the other is an expert in AI. Now, one of these is actually pretty dangerous, right? When it comes to the end of the human race, one of them is pretty dangerous. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you to close your eyes and I want you to vote for which one you think it is, right? So I don't want you to be influenced by other people. So, um, so raise your hand, close your eyes and raise your hand if you think it's volcanoes. Close your eyes, raise your hand. Okay, close your eyes, raise your hand if you think it's a space event. All right, close your eyes, raise your hand if you think it's a fungus. Okay. And close your eyes and raise your hand if you think it's AI. Uh, really, uh, really uh, looking forward to hearing from my experts on this. I'm most concerned that the immunologist put her hand up for a fungi. <laughs> <laughs> eyes closed, buddy. Yeah, oh, eyes yeah. closed. <laughs> Safe space. So don't worry. Don't worry so. so, all right. Uh, it's time, as we often do, uh, to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is uh, Dr. Lara Dungan, immunologist and medic, and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen. You're both very welcome. Our first story is a good news story for once on the show. <laughs> it's to do with CERN. And Ireland is finally about to join CERN. What the hell is CERN? CERN is a, um, it's a multinational collaboration about science. And it's all about, as angels and demons have shown us, making black holes under the, the surface of France and Switzerland and causing the end of the world. <laughs> um, uh, no, no, no. It is uh, an international research organization and it's been going on for a long time. And they're looking at the nature of matter itself, the stuff that we are made from, the particles and subatomic particles at that. People might be familiar with the idea of the Higgs boson. Uh, remember that from a couple of years ago when it was discovered and it was associated a, with a simpler time, Shane. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's 27 kilometers. It's, it's a big ring under the ground. It was the, the, the latest one was built in 2008. And Ireland has been outside the club. And I suspect it's because CERN is for European Organization for Nuclear Research. And in case anyone thinks and I'm getting my letters wrong, it's spelt in French. So um, I'm not going to say the French for CERN, Aww, but we, we've no been fun. no fun. We've been outside of it. And I suspect 
suspect it's because of the nuclear uh, element of it. So Ireland didn't join CERN and uh, scientists in Ireland have really been disappointed about that for a long time because it excludes us from doing some of the most fundamental physics that you could imagine. Can I ask a question? The, the, Here we go. The, the, <laughs> the, the, they, they get these like subatomic particles, right? Mm. And they speed them up, like loop, 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 and then they bang them against each other, and then they see what 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 they're made of. Is that right? No, they they use Einstein's equation e equals m c squared to uh, collide beams of light, and so they do it at such high energies that that energy, huge amounts of energy, gets um, cr uh, turned into tiny amounts of matter. Right. So it's E energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. So you need a lot of energy to turn it into a small amount of mass. Mm. And so by doing these collisions uh, under, in, these, uh, in this huge ring, they're able to create particles and look at the collisions of them. It's extraordinary stuff. But once you've done that, like, I don't know, 100 times, then, like, then, then what? Like, what, what are they hoping to do in the future with CERN? Oh, yeah. Well, they're they're looking to understand uh, the standard model, which is the, the basis for what we're all made of. And we it's like a jigsaw puzzle, but we, it's a jigsaw puzzle where we haven't a clue where many of the final pieces are. And so they have to go away and and create ideas for what they're looking for and then go and search. And that's what happened with the Higgs boson. So Peter Higgs postulated that the Higgs boson would exist decades before anyone found it because they didn't have the equipment to go and look for it. And of course, whilst I say that the um, it CERN is looking to understand the fundamental building blocks of what we're all made of, remember that most of the matter in the universe and most of the energy in the universe is unaccounted for, so-called mm. dark uh, matter and dark energy. We just don't know what it's made of. So it means that the model that we have isn't complete. Hmm. And I think um, it gets to a very fundamental point. You mentioned that earlier, I like philosophy, this idea of physics being the world. It's not. Physics is a map of the world. So physics is the best scenario that we have to explain the physical world. I'll leave the, the life sciences to my friend here on the right. But <laughs> yeah, <please> we, do. <laughs> we, we, we just don't have a complete enough map. And so like there's so much such undiscovered physics mm. that we have to go and, and, and unearth. And that's what things like CERN are for. And so the future of CERN is uh, higher energies to make different types of subatomic particles and different flavors and, and, and collisions of energies, all in, um, in the hope of trying to fill in uh, not just the standard model, but the successors to it. Lara, our second story has to do with artificial intelligence. This story, um, this subject that uh, will not um, go away from our news. And this is to do with heart. It is, issues. absolutely. So um, picture this. You present to the emergency department because you've got chest pain. And that happens to, obviously, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people every year. So we'll take the UK because it's a big population. About 350,000 people who present to the emergency department with chest pain in the UK every year get a CT scan, so a cardiac CT. Um, people are treated in lots of different ways. Some people get ECG, some people get invasive angiograms, and some people get this scan. And what they're looking for is blockages in the coronary arteries. So these are the arteries that give the blood to your heart. We know your heart gives the blood to the rest of your body, but it needs a huge blood supply. And your coronary arteries can narrow. And when you don't have enough blood going through, it can cause ischemic pain, which is pain where you don't have enough oxygen. And that's what they're looking for. And a lot of the time, most of the time, they say, they're not narrowed. Go on off home and you're grand. But what they found is those people who have presented with this chest pain are more likely to die from a cardiac event, even the people who didn't have narrowed arteries. Hmm. 
And there's a new way of looking at these CT scans with AI that they're hoping to pilot. And they're actually already piloting in five hospitals in the UK. The NHS have already said, yes, let's go ahead. And it looks for a different thing called inflammation. So we mentioned I'm an immunologist. I love inflammation, or I suppose I hate it, depending on what it's causing. (laughs) And inflammation causes the fat around the arteries to change a little bit, but it's very hard to see. We can't see it, but AI can see it. And they look and they give it a score. And people who have a lot of inflammation, a lot of changes in this fat can have a very high score. And what they did was they looked at this in 40,000 people, then they assessed it specifically in 4,000 people and they gave them this score. And for nearly 1,000 people, they went to their doctors and they said, have another think. You've sent this person home, you know, you've said they're okay, they don't have a blockage in the artery, but they've got a really high score here. Do you want to change what you're going to do? And in nearly half of the cases, the doctors did change. They, They believed in the score and they did change. Now, we don't have the evidence yet of how these people lasted afterwards, but we know that um, the eight-year survival rate was much higher in the people who had a very low score in terms of the inflammation, and a lot more of them died in the people who had a lot more inflammation. So hopefully going forward, this is something that will be used. I mean, actively, this isn't a kind of a theoretical futuristic 10 years from now. This is already going to be used in five hospitals in the UK and hopefully across the world just to make doctors at the moment, just to make doctors have a little think and say, look, there's no blockage, but there is this risk score here. It's new. Do you believe in it? And do you want to treat this person differently? And hopefully it'll save a lot of lives. They reckon it should reduce about 20% of the cardiac events and about 8% of the deaths going forward. That's what they estimate. So fingers crossed. Which, which is absolutely huge. And this Amazing. is what we were all, I suppose, dreaming of when, when AI really started to show promise was that AI would, would be able to look at things like uh, these sort of scans or OCT scans and, and be able to see things that humans can't. When when you are feeding data into something like that, um, do you have to have very standardized imaging? Because, a, a, you know, if there's a little bit too much light or a little bit, you know, if it's coloring a certain way, will it, you know, is there a danger that it might misdiagnose or, or send too many people to screening and then essentially be ineffective? Yeah, I mean, by definition, cardiac CT scanning is pretty standardized because people need to be able to read it by a comparison to the norm. Right. So most imaging is pretty standardized. There's different machines that'll do different imaging. But a lot of the time, so if somebody moves in the middle of the CT or an MRI, the image will be rejected. So it's pretty standardized as it is. But the AI should also have the capability of learning to account for small differences anyway in the standard of the imaging. But it should be pretty standardized anyway, hopefully, if the job is being done right. Uh, As a a medic, I mean, this is just one particular condition and people present to hospitals for lots of, of different reasons. I mean, do we have anything close to the infrastructure, the, the budget uh, to be able to use AI to its full at- uh, potential when it comes to healthcare, when these things come in? Yeah, look, it's a brilliant question. And I suppose it depends on where the investment chooses to go. So, I mean, there's money there. There's 20 something billion that's being spent every year. God knows where it's going, but it's being spent. So, I mean, if there was a little bit of a rejigging in where the money was going, this has a lot of potential to help. And it saves a huge amount of money. Treating somebody who has had a heart attack is a lot more expensive than paying for them to not have one. Uh, uh, Yeah, I think sometimes the problem is is we're spending money on hospital beds and research, uh, longer term stuff is, 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 if we catch up with it, will be a much better investment, right? Yeah, I don't think that there's like when you look, that, that's the classic story about the moon, right? So it cost a huge percentage of the GDP of the United States to send people to the moon. And of course, there was loads of politics in that. But 
they educated tons of people to the level of PhD as a consequence, and they in turn created lots of industries and transformed medicine and technology mm. in the United States and arguably had massive long-term impacts. Um, Shane, our third story has to do with, um, with NASA and this uh, real dilemma that's going on at the moment, um, the tug between what's cool and sexy and what is good science. It's also about budgets. As Lara mentioned there, we spend 20 billion a year in our health and God knows where it goes. NASA literally are astronomical in their budgets. And so they're working on something called the Mars Sample Return. It started at 4 billion, it's now up to 8 to 11 billion, right? Whopping amounts of money, even for the United States. But my God, is this a cool mission to do? So we know that Perseverance is, is on the surface of Mars at the moment, and it's trundling along and it's picking up rocks. And we've, just, we've talked about it on the show numerous times, and it's putting those rocks into little titanium tubes and holding on to them. And it's holding on to them because it imagines something someday is going to come and pick them up. And <laughs> Which is both optimistic and sad. It is the sad sequel to Wally. Yeah, so <laughs> it's the little robot that does not get rescued because uh, it's going to cost more than 10 million euros or dollars to sort this out. What they're trying to do is launch a mission from Earth it will go to Mars. It'll find Perseverance, which isn't easy. Perseverance is what? small and large is big, and Mars is big, right? You have to land in yeah, the right Yeah, but they right know spot. where it is, though, right? Yeah, but you have to land close enough to it so you can get to it. So it's still not trivial. And it has to transfer the titanium capsule from one to the other. And then, crucially, it has to take off, right? Now, the gravity on Mars is lower than that of Earth. Right. I had to look it up earlier. It's, it's about two and a half times the difference. Right. So things are heavier here on Earth than they are on Mars. But still, you think of the big Saturn V rockets to launch things here on Earth. So something, you know, kind of on that order is going to be needed to launch something from Mars. So you need a big rocket to take off from Mars. Right. And then it's going to come back into an Earth orbit. And this is, uh, or it's going to stay in a Mars orbit, rather. And this is where the Europeans come in. We're going to send out the retrieving unit. So we're going to send out... We're going to do the easy part. Yeah, the pickup at the end, exactly. We're going to, we're going to go to Mars. We're going to uh, get into orbit. There's going to be a transfer then uh, of the capsules, bring them back to Earth and land them. But the scientists are going bananas because if they spend all the money on this, and there are cool reasons for doing it, there are lots of other missions that might get the scrap. But... I, I kind of think, like, I love the moonshot idea. It's worth doing it because they're looking for rocks that might have signs that uh, Mars once had life. So yeah, but like, I mean, if we're going to send enough kit and fuel to send a rocket back to Earth, surely we just send a, a pretty decent mini lab and open them up there and do the science there and send the results back. Why don't we do that? Well, it's, it's um, possible that it mightn't happen until the mid-2030s, and so the science for these labs may have improved. It's always the tricky bit with space science is that you send the mission off now, and if, if you wait a few years, technology will have improved, so your rocket will be more efficient and the lab stuff will be in the rocket by the time it gets there. But sure, you're always waiting, thinking the next technology is coming. It's probably the reason my dad doesn't have solar panels on the roof of their house. He's always thinking, no, no, it's about to get easier. Right? So I keep telling him, it isn't, so just get the damn solar panels. So they are interested in life, right? So Mars four billion years ago was covered in warm oceans. <laughs> and so it's quite likely that the conditions were perfect for life to have started there. If it did, that means we're not unique here on Earth and that we could go look at the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, Jupiter with, with greater attention and imagine that there could be life there too. 
Yeah, it's a lot of money on a bet, right? I mean, if the rocks come back and there's no yeah, sign of life, it'd be like, it's just rocks. But you know, it'd be even more <laughs> money is sending people. I, I don't agree with the idea of sending humans to Mars. It's just like, it's ridiculous. Apart from just the, 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 the journey of getting there, our best bet. I've heard many astrophysicists say this is just to send a robot. There's some humans I would send to Mars, but that's a different <laughs> subject. Um, our final story, Lara, has to do with cocaine hippos. Yes, it has. Has anyone seen Cocaine Bear, that movie? And if you haven't, you should watch it. It's fantastic. Is it good? It is so watchable and so brilliant. And this story is not at all about hippos on cocaine, unfortunately. But that would have been a cool little segue if it was. There are hippos in Colombia. Um, and lots of people have heard of this because it is re relatively famous. But Pablo Escobar decided in the late 1970s to ship four hippos. So one male and three female hippos out for his big zoo that he had along with elephants, giraffes, antelope, all sorts of things. And then he died in 1993. And most of the animals were rehomed to zoos on uh, the South American continent. But the hippos made a break for it. So these four hippos escaped. <laughs> Not on cocaine, we don't think. But they escaped. By about 2007... There was 16 hippos. By 2014, there was about 40 hippos. And now there's somewhere between 180 and 215 hippos. And hippos belong in sub-Saharan Africa, for anyone who doesn't know. So Colombia is having a lot of problems with these hippos. Obviously, they're an invasive species, the largest that exists. So they are destroying the ecosystem. They're displacing the capybaras, the caiman, the manatees. And they're, they're threatening to kill people. They haven't killed anyone yet, but... What do you mean they're threatening to kill people? They're sending messages. <laughs> <laughs> they're on cocaine. Who knows what they're doing, okay? <laughs> but there is an obvious threat to the local fishermen and all the people who live in the area. So the Colombian government need to do something about it. And it was believed that they weren't going to do anything, but recently they have announced that they are going to do a three-pronged attack. So they are going to try and remove these hippos. So one of the prongs is to kill as many hippos as they can, which isn't ideal because they're not an endangered species, but they're vulnerable, which is just below endangered. The other one is to try and ship them out. India has promised to take 60 and Mexico will take 10, but that's going to cost three and a half million dollars and Colombia does not want to spend that. And the other one is to castrate the male hippos, which is what they are going to do. And they're going to try and castrate 20 of them by the end of the year. But this is not a simple task. The no. hippos are very big and very strong and very angry, and they live in the water. So it takes eight men teams or women to get in there and to actually castrate them. They come out at night and they graze. So they have to, they have to anesthetize them. They have to get in and castrate them. But that's the plan. They're going to try and do 20 by the end of the year. And hopefully, within a few years, they will have done them all. And there will no longer be hippos as an invasive species in Colombia. Now, they still live for many years, so castrated or not, they're still going to cause a lot of damage to the environment, but at least something at the moment is happening to the largest invasive species on the planet. And, and they are big, like mm. a, a, a large adult hippo is like three and a half ton. Mm. Like, that's insane. <laughs> they're so like, big. Absolutely enormous. They're so dangerous. Um, so I don't fancy them uh, that job, I have to be honest with that you. That could be your next program, right? Yeah, out to Columbia to an ETH-sized cocaine uh, <laughs> yeah. hippos. We're here. Um, we can see the hippos <laughs> in the distance now. <laughs> oh, run! Um, brilliant. Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD, Dr. Lara Duggan. Thank you very much. Uh, Okay, stay with us because in a few minutes' time, we're going to be exploring humanity's greatest threats. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. We're recording live at the Dublin Royal Convention Centre for Science Week. Yay! 
And for this episode, um, we wanted to explore the biggest threats to humanity because the, the theme for Science Week this week is, is human and exploring what it means to be human. But if you pick up the papers or you scroll the internet, it seems like nearly everything is out to get us. And which of those are, are, are real threats and which aren't? Well, it's a question we want to explore. And so um, over the next two parts, we're going to be hearing from different experts as they sort of lay out the land. So we're joined by Dr. Robert Ross. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Computer Science in TU Dublin and a photo researcher at ADAPT. And uh, Professor Chris Bean, who's a senior professor and head of geophysics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. He's a volcanic expert. Um, Robert. Yes. Um, I suppose, look, one of the problems with AI is that um, we just lump it in with a whole bunch of science fiction stuff. And it's sometimes hard to peel that back. Like if you Google AI, and even if it's an actual science or a business story, you have like these robotic arms, and, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. which has really yeah. AI has very little to do with robotics. So there are adjacent fields, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, so, so, so like being killed by killer robots, it's pretty low on, on, on the risk list, right? Our existential threat from, from AI is more a societal threat. Is that right? Or, yeah. or is, there a, is there a physical danger to our bodies? Well, on the physical danger thing, I often think it's just how stupid are we in terms of what we want to do connecting AI to things. So if you want to go ahead and take AI systems based on some really well-trained models and connect them up to the nuclear codes, fair enough, you've created yourself an existential threat. But, but you have to argue whether that's really the AI's fault or the person who connected it in the first place. And but, that, 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 but, yeah. that would be a, a reasonable threat, right? I mean, if you think about Donald Trump um, coming to the presidency, the, the, the suitcase with the new code, yeah. that has to be connected to some online system. Like, uh, if, you know, if we, if we attached AI to that, that would be a serious... Well, if you attach AI to anything and you train it and you give it the ability to do things that maybe weren't originally planned in the first place, things are possible. But in general, coming back to your original point, I, I, I would say that the whole robotic AI end of the world thing, you know, it's there as a threat. But I tend to think about these things as having three tiers. So that the three tiers of AI apocalypse, if you will. <laughs> Tier one, you do have the, the robo AI Terminator 2, end of the world, science fiction, let's just park that over in the corner type stuff. I don't think that's the sort of thing that, that gets me in a sweat at night. It's not the sort of thing I'm worrying about in particular, but there are other levels. So, you know, what I think about is often sort of, say, the tier two problems, and that is the society changing in terms of jobs, for example. So people have a lot of justifiable fear at the moment. The fear is justifiable. The reality might be quite different in terms of how AI might impact in terms of the job space, what it means to be educated and to take advantage of careers and the knowledge that we spend an awful lot of in terms of education, etc. South Park had an interesting uh, episode about that recently. Um, but then you have also tier three, which I'd say is the bigger threat to humanity and the one that's already here in terms of how AI can be used by bad actors, bad players, in terms of influencing society, democracy, how we interact with each other, and, and even starts to get the populace as a whole questioning what it means to have truth. It, does truth really exist, etc.? They're the things that actually really scare me. They're the things that they're not necessarily far into the future. They're here and now. They're not sci-fi weird 
pretend AI is threatening humanity, it, it is a threat. Now, don't get me wrong, it's, it's a threat we need to be aware of and educate people on, but that's not the same thing to say, oh my God, run around, the end of the world is nigh, but it's certainly the case that we need to make sure that we're educating the populace, we're educating our politicians, our policymakers, in terms of the dangers that could be there, and um, you know, trying to figure out what can we do to make sure there are safeguards in place. They're the things that actually scare me. Although if you had a killer robot pointing a gun at me, it'd probably scare me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a, a, a sort of a societal threat and not a bodily threat. Um, yes, yes. Chris, you're uh, an expert in, in volcanoes. This is a, a slightly different tackle. So this is a real threat. Um, and I was uh, lucky enough to film in Yellowstone um, uh, a number of uh, years back for a TV program. And, um, and, and I learned that uh, vol some volcanoes on this planet have the potential for enormous catastrophe, these super volcanoes. So talk to me about, uh, about super volcanoes. What sort of a threat are volcanoes to human life? In the volcano world, AI is actually our friend because before I get on to super volcanoes, you just think of volcanoes themselves, like how do they work? How we know that something is going to happen in a volcano is really around the change that happens uh, to the volcano itself. And we can measure those, that change. So we can put instruments on the ground and measure changes in the ground vibration, for example. So if we think of a medical analogy, if I go up to your chest and I listen to your heart, I can hear your heart beating and I go, that's a human heart. Imagine if I could put my ear against 100 human hearts all at the same time. They're all beating at different speeds. They all have different strengths. And I'm trying to go, it's a cacophony of sound. I'm trying to go, what is going on in this environment? It's a really, really complex environment. So if I want to monitor change in that environment, then I really have a problem because it's very hard to build a physical model of such a complex object. But this is where AI comes in. It's extremely good at recognizing patterns in very complicated data. And so if, if we use suites of models in advance when we're sitting in the lab, when there's no stress, and we can train AI systems to understand ranges of possible patterns and then show these real-world patterns to the AI system, it can go, oh, I know what that's happening. Mm. Jonathan's heart's beating over there and somebody else's heart's beating over there. And, and then we get a better physical understanding of what's going on inside in the volcano. And that's, so we can approach uh, kind of risk mitigation on volcanoes in two, two completely different ways. We can either use a totally data-driven approach where we can close our eyes and go, uh, okay, I've heard this pattern before, and when it happened the last time, this is what happened in the future. Or else we can build physical models of, like we would flying an aircraft, we fly by, we, you know, we can simulate aircraft flight, you can simulate what's happening in the volcano, and that gives you a better, you can tweak some parameters, change the, the viscosity, the stickiness of the fluids, change this, change that, and say, this is what we expect to happen. And what we're doing now is we're melding these two things together, the kind of data-driven approach and the model-driven approach, and they're coming together with AI. So in this case, AI is our friend. So when we go to super volcanoes, there's nothing particularly special about super volcanoes, except they're super big. <laughs> so in terms of how they actually work, they're the same. So volcanoes come in all range of sizes. They're kind of like earthquakes. We get lots and lots and lots of small earthquakes and not so many big ones. The physics of the problem doesn't really go through any transition. It's basically the same physical type of problem, but it's just that you know sometimes big things happen and sometimes small things happen. Um, and so with volcanoes, it's similar. We get a lot of smaller eruptions, 
but we very seldom get to the point where enough, enough magma accumulates in the subsurface to give us super massive eruptions. But they do happen uh, infrequently. So for example, everybody has heard of Yellowstone in the central US. So the last big eruption there was about 600,000 years ago. There was one over a million years before that and one two million years before that. So in that case, it was like a one million year hiatus between two massive eruptions. Right. But these eruptions, and then, the they're theme, bad. They're bad. <laughs> and the theme, the theme here is, you know, will they wipe us out completely? And it's a very interesting question because I think uh, it depends on what, where we are in the kind of human evolutionary space. So they change global uh, weather for decades. Wow. So we can even think of it as a mini change in climate because they, they inject a huge amount of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, and then that... Uh, can actually on the other particles and they can actually block out the sun's uh, radiation so it's like a it's like a it, the opposite to, to the to the global warming you get a mini kind of global cooling and um, you also get redistribution of rainfall you get acid rain as this uh, sulfur dioxide mixes with uh, with uh, water vapor in the atmosphere and so it really does it, it can be quite catastrophic locally it's hugely catastrophic if you're within tens or hundreds of kilometers of these things um, you know you, you have a, the, a serious problem so the Toba eruption in 74,000 years ago in an Indonesia uh, carpeted uh, the subcontinent, Indian subcontinent, with about six centimeter thick layer of ash. So this is massive. But if you were at the other side of the world, what you would see are changes in uh, atmospheric conditions. So, for example, the Krakatoa in the in the late uh, 1800s changed the color of the sunsets, for example, and uh, Munch's The Scream has all this beautiful color in it, which is 10 years later, and that's reckoned that that atmospheric change in color is associated with the particulate output from the Krakatoa eruption wow. in, in Indonesia. The question as to whether they'll wipe humans off the face of the earth is, uh, is interesting because I think that depends on resilience. Uh, say centuries down the road, if we get highly fragmented and less resilient, Maybe something like a super large volcanic eruption could finish us off. But I think at the moment, we're so resilient because there's so many of us and we're so adaptable uh, that, that, that that's not a prospect in my view. You started off and I was very comfortable. You said like 600,000 years ago and, hmm. and before that was a million years. And then you were like 64,000 years ago. That's a little bit closer. Yeah, and then yeah. you said, you know, Krakatoa is 1800. I was like, yeah. now we're getting really close. Yeah, we like, are, yeah. Realistically, we, we can't predict these things we, we can you know if we see a lot of activity but like say for today we've no idea if there could be a super volcano event in three years time for example is that correct i would say for super volcano eruption three years out you probably have some idea that something's happening by the way does anyone suffer from anxiety in the room yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. i no. should have asked that before we began yeah no i mean for anybody living in the region um that that you know anywhere within hundreds of kilometers these things it is a very very bad day if one of these things goes off. So it, 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 you know, they are very, very uh, dangerous in that regard. All right. Dr. Robert Ross um, has said that we, we don't need to worry too much about the threat of AI. Professor Chris Bean saying we don't need to worry too much about volcanoes, but, but we don't really know uh, there is a threat. Uh, thank you both uh, for, for joining us. Does anyone have a, have a question for Robert and Chris? I've just spent um, a week in the Galapagos with Chris's team, um, actually uh, making a documentary uh, in, in a volcano. And 
it, you know, it sounds like great fun, but actually the amount of work trekking these enormous heavy batteries to very, very difficult locations, it's not an easy job. We have a few questions. Yes, uh, this lady, we'll get to you then. You know that the, the situation that is happening in Iceland that is about to, to erupt, what do you think about and do you think AI could help us to detect that? Yeah, so that's a, yeah, that's a very interesting question. So at the moment, Iceland looks like the place where we're going to see a new, possibly see an up, a new eruption. Um, it turns out that the volcanoes in Iceland are actually reasonably easy to forecast, and it's because they're non usually non-explosive. People say, well, I remember A of Fertile Oakland, that was really explosive, but that was a sp special case. So they're, they're usually quite non-explosive. So we see a lot of ground deformation before it, so the magma's building up underneath and the ground is deforming, which can be measured using GPS sensors and also space based radar, you can look at differences in the, in the height of the ground, looking at, at the differences between two radar images from space. So we can, and there's, you know, there are a lot of uh, earthquakes as you, you may have seen. So they really give a lot of uh, early warning signals themselves. So we don't actually need to go into the details of AI to, to actually to, to try to detect what's going on in an environment like that. The more difficult volcanoes uh, to try to forecast are the ones where the magma is much stickier. The, the magma in Iceland runs, uh, it's not very uh, viscous, so it, it flows nicely and, and, you know, not quite like water, but it flows easily. But a volcano, depending on the details of the rock type and different geographical locations, some rocks are very sticky, the, the, the magma doesn't flow or the lava when it doesn't flow very well. And they're and, less predictable. And they're a lot less predictable. There's a, there's a, lot, more, there's a lot more complexity there. Any other questions in the room? It's just about the a AI and um, like we talk about like AI in the mass, but like uh, obviously social media is so vulnerable for kids. So how do we think that's going to impact our kids and, and safeties for them? That's the one where I'm, you know, there's another, there's so many fears I have about it, to be <laughs> honest. And, and I think the interesting thing, I, I don't think we picked up on it, is the other threats tonight, they're threats that we don't control. They, you know, we did not create volcanoes. We did not create asteroids falling from the skies or, or fungi that are going to take over our brains. But this is something of our own making, which sort of in my own mind puts it in a different category yeah. of stupidity. Um, but the, the, to, to come to your specific point, the very fact that something like a variant on ChatGPT is built into, um, not WhatsApp, um, Snapchat, and Snapchat, in its default mode, has a variant of ChatGPT there for the kids. Now, is it Snapchat or one of the, the social medias that I'm far too old to use, right? But it's one that the kids use a lot. Where yeah, the, I think it's Snapchat, yeah. Yeah, where the minimum age is supposed to be 13, but we know that kids a lot younger than it use it. Th that scares me because we don't know the long-term social implications of what that level of engagement is going to be from such a young age. Um, not enough research has been done it. Maybe it's fine, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Maybe it is absolutely grand and we don't need to worry about it. I'd be very happy if that was the case, but I don't have evidence to that point. Uh, yeah. And in that way, worries about my children becoming emotionally connected, you know, is it a tool or is it a conversational partner becoming emotionally connected to this AI on their phone? And if it suddenly says something back at them that they're not happy with and how that might affect them, yeah, if a six-year-old daughter, I worry about her in all sorts of ways. This is another way I'm going to end up wor worrying about her. So, Great. yeah, it's an issue. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Robert Ross and Chris Bean, thanks again. Thank
You're listening to Future Proof, where we are recording in front of a uh, live audience at the Dublin Royal Convention Centre for Science Week, with thanks to Science Foundation Ireland. On the way, we're going to hear exactly how much of a threat to humanity are space events and deathly fungal infections. Stay with us. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. We are recording in front of a live audience for Science Week at the Dublin Royal Convention Centre uh, with thanks to Science Foundation Ireland. And we're looking at the end of days, what humanity might look like and what the biggest threats to humans are today. Uh, we're joined now by Professor Katrina Jackman. She's Senior Professor of Space Physics at Dunsink Observatory and Jerry Clancy, who is a PhD student at the School of Chemical Sciences in DCU. Uh, Katrina, we might start with you. Um, you know, there's been so many science fiction films made about uh, a giant asteroid or a meteor. Or, well, is it an, what is it? What is it? What is the one that, that could crush us all? What's that called? Is it an asteroid or a meteor? An asteroid. Right. So uh, there are lots of rocks in space. Lots of them are small. Some of them are big, a bit like the continuum that Chris talked about when it comes to volcanoes. Most of the rocks in space are small, but there are some monster rocks that can hit us, that can head our way. If you want to ask the dinosaurs how the effect of monster rocks is, then yeah, it shows. So they are out there and there are lots of objects in the asteroid belt, which is the region sort of between Mars and Jupiter. And then there are lots more in the Kuiper belt, which is beyond the orbit of Neptune. And many of these objects find their way towards the Earth. Most of the objects that find their way towards the Earth burn up in the atmosphere. Of the objects that manage to make it through the atmosphere, 70% of those land in the ocean. Why is that? Because 70% of the Earth is covered in water. Right. So it's pretty rare that we have a big event, but it's very dangerous when we do. So um, most of the time we might get a small little rock or whatever if we're unlucky enough, but, but almost always we, we, it just sort of disappears. Do we know... Uh, what's going on with all the rocks in, in space? Like these big rocks, do we know where they are? I mean, are there rogue rocks in space that, uh, that aren't doing a, a normal loop? Or, or is there an unpredictability about what could hit Earth? So it's our job to know what's in space. And the European Space Agency and NASA have planetary defense offices. And there are lots of space rocks on the so-called watch list. So there are lots really? of objects. Yeah, absolutely. The naughty list, if you like. And they are constantly being monitored. So we have a network of cameras all around the globe. Actually, even here in Dublin, in the Dunsink Observatory, we're part of an international meteor observing network. So we have a camera that every night scans the night sky and it takes lots of images of meteors. It's not tracking asteroids specifically. It's tracking... Um, meteors. It also picks up some other odd things in the night sky. So another use of AI is that Do you have we, like a phone by your bed that goes if something happens? I don't, no. thankfully. <laughs> I don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night by that. But we actually use AI to analyze that data. So some interns that we've had at Dunsink have used a machine learning algorithm to look at the images from the meteor camera and distinguish the meteors, which we see regularly, from things like spiders, which crawl onto the camera. And uh, I think death by also giant dangerous spider time. Could, be, could be dodgy. But yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's a list of objects that are in a close to Earth orbit, and they're all being tracked really carefully. Um, 
And just one final point on this. Presumably, if we do get a big, like, dinosaur ending uh, sort of rock hitting us, or, or even if we, we see it in time, there's very little we can do, but we can't, like, dodge a, a space rock or deflect it if we're talking about something of this size, right? We don't have the firepower to do something like that, right? Well, you say that. Now, lots of people, I assume, have seen the film Armageddon, and I think many of us might agree that that's, Ben that's Affleck scientific documentary, is... Uh, yeah. <laughs> we don't want to put all of our faith in Ben Affleck, but it's actually not that far um, from the truth, the kind of approach that was taken in that film. So in 2021, NASA launched a mission called DART, and it is using something which is very fancily called kinetic impact, but it's effectively smashing a spacecraft into a rock and trying to deflect the rock. So a bit like oh, if yeah. you were, yeah, if you were playing snooker and you hit one ball off another and you use it to deflect its path. So that's precisely what DART did and it was successful. So in 2022, it had a test where they smashed the spacecraft into a space rock and it deflected its course. And all we need to do if we see something big coming in our direction is deflect it just a tiny bit, just enough so that it misses us and then it's somebody else's problem. <laughs> We're very selfish as a species. <laughs> so sorry, Mars, <laughs> yeah. if it comes for you. Um, okay, so that obviously is, is unlikely. But when we, um, when we think about real present threats, there is a space event that exists that is alongside a pandemic. What is that? It's a space weather event. So the UK and actually most recently Ireland um, develop things called national risk registers or national risk assessments. The Irish government's national risk assessment has 25 scary things that could happen. <laughs> and space weather is on that list. So the governments basically work with analysts, they work with scientists, economists, effectively professional worriers, and they come up with a list of all the dangerous things. And risk registers include things like pandemic flu, flood, acts of terrorism, and space weather. So what, what do you mean by space weather? You don't mean like cosmic rain? No, no. So space weather is the interaction between the sun and the Earth's magnetic field. The sun is a star, it's a giant magnet, it's constantly spitting out the solar wind, which is a flow of charged particles, which is headed in our direction. And the activity of the sun waxes and wanes. And if you have a really, really strong solar storm, that can have a huge impact on the Earth. And the reason for that is that we are just so reliant on technology. So we're reliant on GPS. We're using electricity. We just assume that when we turn the lights on, they're going to work. We just assume that satellite communications are going to beam our Sky TV to our house. But if there's a big space weather event, all of those things are extremely vulnerable to... To, to what? What, what happens? Like they'll get fried? Well, so different things can happen. So to give an example, um, Elon Musk. So he is also in the business of launching satellites. And just last year, 38 of his Starlink satellites were lost because of not even a big space weather event, a moderate space weather event. And it caused some heating of charged particles in the atmosphere. And that caused an unexpected drag on his satellites. And they got pulled down and burned up and probably seen by our meteor cameras actually in Dunsink. <laughs> so... You can lose satellites through wow. space weather events. There have been disruptions to commercial aviation. Just a couple of years ago, Swedish airspace was closed for more than an hour because there was a, a radio blackout. And so you couldn't have proper communication to guide aviation. 
So, you know, space weather might not kill you, but if it knocks out your GPS, it makes your life pretty unpleasant. Right. Okay. Uh, and, and in terms of a really big space weather event, like does it, uh, like what exactly happens to, is it the electronics get, like is they get fried or what exactly is, what's so, the effect on, on the, the equipment that is, is, is so crucial sure so it, it can have different effects on, on equipment in space it can kind of affect as i just said with with the starling satellites on on satellite drag it can um fry electronics um on for example the space station it can have effects on astronaut safety and radiation there it can also introduce um geomagnetically induced currents in ground stations so that can have an impact on our electricity grids so it's a whole range of different effects both in space and on the ground and as I said it's up there in terms of likelihood and also in terms of impact with pandemic flu so a big space weather event is a really dangerous thing okay very interesting um Jerry everybody I'm sure has heard of the series The Last of Us but maybe you haven't uh, seen it the premise of the film is that it's the end of the world, uh, a fraction of the human race is still alive. Um, and the reason is because of a fungus uh, that attacks um, human beings and sort of turns them into zombies. And then they go crazy and kill each other, um, which uh, is entertaining. It's a very good series. Um, but it seems so ridiculously far-fetched that I thought, you know, let, let's, you know, it almost went off the realm of credibility for me. And then I, I, I read something by Jerry. So Jerry, um, tell me a little bit about um, you and your interest in this and, and exactly what fungi we're talking about. So, I mean, when I watched it, I was almost terrified because I saw real fungus that does exist and real mechanisms that it can spread. And it was just kind of a, a TV representation of my own nightmares right. because uh, it is a real fungus. Um, it's called cordyceps. It doesn't infect humans right now. You know, it would have to make a bit of an interesting biological leap. Right now it's in loads of insects. Most famously, it's in, it's in ants because there was a David Attenborough documentary that followed them. And, and what it does is it gets into the creature's brain and by, they can just breathe it in. So it just floats in the air. They inhale it. Spores. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it gets into their brain. And when you look at the show, you think that they're kind of people are going crazy. But in reality, it's more like it wraps around the brain, wraps around all of your muscles, and it kind of moves you around like a puppet. Yeah. So you're not gone mentally crazy. You're completely aware and you're terrified yourself as you walk along and bite the next person, uh, just wishing that you could stop yourself from doing it. So the issue is, it's, I mean, we know we've seen things like... So this happens in, in the fungus it in, when it comes to ants. They, yes. they sort of take over the nervous system and they control the, the actual body of, of, of an ant. Yes. We're very different from ants, though. Exactly. Like, we've seen some viruses that have gone from, you know, swine flu has gone from a pig to human, but it would take a lot more... Uh, shocking stuff to happen to get from an ant to a human. It's crazy. But there are other funguses that are in humans and that are in things that we eat that do exist right now and are a threat today. And that's what I'd be more concerned about. I mean, we know about 150,000 species of fungus, but we know that there are almost 4 million species, but we just don't know what they are. We don't know anything about them. And of the ones we do know, there's so many that 
damage our crops, they can damage plants, and there's so many that can damage ourselves. Uh, when we talk about crops, there was there's one called ergot, which can get into rye or wheat. There was an example of a village in France in the 50s where there was some fungus-infected flour. Baker didn't notice. He made some bread, and to make a long story short, almost everyone in that village had to be institutionalized for the rest of their life because they had lost their minds. Wow. Yeah, and the ergot has been synthesized, and some people take it for fun because the synthetic version is known as LSD. Oh, no way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So, 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 yeah. I mean, taking a lot of that certainly can uh, cause unpredictable behaviour. But um, in terms of fungal infections or or um, spreading fungus from from human to human, like a virus or like in this film, is that a, a, a very science fictiony thing, or do or or do humans also act as hosts to dangerous fungi? We can definitely act as hosts. Uh, only last year, the WHO moved viruses down one peg on the things they're most scared of and moved funguses above them. Is that because they just watched The Last of Us? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably that. I can think of two right now. There's one called Candida auris, and it's spreading quite rapidly right now in nursing homes and hospitals, where when someone gets it, what the hospital's reaction to do is try and treat it, but I think the death rate at the moment is 88% or above. Wow. Ten years ago, the death rate would have been 20%. Why is it so much more dangerous? Because we are not really good at making antifungals that funguses aren't able to overcome and learn. They're so fast, so adept at discovering ways to become immune or to become resistant to them. Quicker than viruses. Yes. And what it means is in Spain and the US right now, they have clusters of these infections. And the first thing they do is they burn all the mattresses, they burn all the sheets, and they close entire wards. Because when a virus leaves a person's body, they can exhale it, it will die eventually. But if a fungus leaves your body and it lands on your mattress, it can grow like a plant, it can embed and spread. And when someone... Yeah, yeah and if you, if you die from a fungal infection, you become a fertilizer for the fungus. Right. So you can't just bury the body, you have to burn it. And, and, and I mean, this is exactly what we're seeing in The, in the Last of Us. Exactly. That's why they're so afraid of it, because you get these sort of puffs. Um, yeah. and, and, and OK, so wh where are we in terms of um, protecting ourselves against something that, that could be more, um, more widespread? Uh, we're at the place where whenever we think about this, we kind of turn to groups like the HSE and we say, give us eight more years, give us another decade, please. Please just don't have an outbreak right now. We know what we need to do. We're just setting up the technology to do it. We're starting to monitor what fungal spores are in the air. We're starting to build kind of a calendar of there are different fungus at different times of year. Very similar. Kind of like a pollen count. Exactly the same as a pollen count. Um, but there's probably 30 times as many in the air. In fact, you're all breathing it right now. Like there's, you're breathing in fungal spores every, every breath. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> are, are there are there funguses out there that are very quick in their in their methodology? You know, that could really, uh, if they did species jump, if they were communicative. Because with with COVID, obviously there was a large number of people who died. Um, uh, but, you know, those who are young and fit and healthy, they seem to have a, a better, uh, you know, 
protection from it. Is that similar with a, with a fungal infection or are there fungal infections that are completely discriminative, um, indiscriminative of, of age or health? Oh, there are ones that are indiscriminative. There's one recent one called Aspergillus fumigatus that it's endemic in Ireland, but it's in such small amounts that no one has yet been infected. But again, anyone that breeds it in, you will get really bad chest damage, you'll get really bad pulmonary issues. And again, it's like 80% plus chance of death. And it's in compost bins, but you can't see it. It's too small. It, you know, a fungal spore is one thirtieth the size of a pollen grain. So when a pollen grain gets into your nose, you'll sneeze, but a fungal spore gets into your nose, goes right past and goes deep down into your lungs. And you might not even notice. And if you inhale enough of them at the wrong time, they'll embed, they'll grow, and you're screwed. <laughs> I have to say, I don't know why I love that, though. I, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm a bit macabre. Uh, but uh, when we started this program, we asked you to, uh, to vote for which one you thought was most likely. Most people thought the biggest threat was, in fact, fungus. So, um, so I think there's a bit of an awareness uh, of this, but uh, some terrifying stories there, Jerry. Uh, fascinating, nonetheless. All right, uh, quick two minutes for questions for Katrina and Jerry. If you have any, raise your hands and we'll get to them and then we'll let you go. Are there any positives to take from funguses? And, and can you detect fungus types from your blood samples? Oh, well, it would be very unfortunate if there was fungus in your blood. Um, I'd hope that there wouldn't be. You can detect it, but if they do, it's already a serious problem. <laughs> um, the... There are really ben beneficial ones, like one that you'll find all the time in the air, not in enough to help you, but like penicillin is a fungus. I'm thinking of other good ones, you know. I mushrooms. Mean, mushrooms, we eat mushrooms, they're great, you know. <laughs> there's, there's, there's loads of benefits to them. And there's loads of medical benefits as well. The, the actual one from the show, cor cordyceps, um, in China it's used as a remedy and a medicine. The people actually eat it. The one from The Last of Us, they eat it all the time to help a new organ transplant be accepted by the body. I don't know what the... Because it suppresses the immune system? I don't know the science behind it. Right, I just okay. know it's very popular. Okay, wow. I, I've really, really enjoyed this with you all. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much to our fantastic guests, Contrita Jackman and uh, Jerry Clancy in this part. Um, thank you uh, and hope you've had... Did you enjoy it? Yes. yes. Very good. I have to say I had so much fun and thank you so much to the Dublin Royal Convention Centre and Science Foundation Ireland uh, and all the team at News Talk for organising it. Uh, just some comments from last week's programme. Uh, Keith, by email, was uh, texting in. We were talking about how rats um, were appearing to show what looked like imagination uh, through a very complicated uh, experiment which gave rats a, a virtual reality experience and then sort of messed with that experience for them. Uh, Keith says, love the show, but your discussion on rats and virtual technology was missing one fundamental element, vivisection, uh, in brackets, uh, Keith says, torture. How are scientists measuring brain function? Rarely discussed in conjunction with animal experimentation, please discuss. Look, um, Keith, we, we, we have talked about uh, the use of animal 
animals in research. It is a subject I want to go into more detail. Actually, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know I do keep saying that. Um, but it is a, a subject we want to visit because even with the best intentions, we know that um, mistakes happen uh, and, and unnecessarily animals are used and destroyed, um, sometimes in vain. And at the same time, you look at the advances that we have in health and medicine and many other fields, and you realize that they wouldn't happen without uh, animal research. And so we, we, we did discuss it a number of times at the beginning of the show, and we found that if we were to preface every conversation that uses animal models with that conversation, the show would get very repetitive. So it's not something that, that I, I'm, I'm blasé about. It is something I'm cognizant of, and I also don't, uh, even though there's strict uh, restrictions in the country on how to use animals and, 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 and best care and, and welfare and so on, I, I do believe that, that it probably isn't good enough and those practices probably need to be updated, that we do need to look at other models um, that might be better because right now uh, animals are relatively cheap, even though it is difficult to do um, experiments with animals. Once you have that permission, um, it can... It, it, it can be a, a cheaper and easier way of getting the results that you, you might want. Um, lots of enthusiasm for the discussion on AirSat1, David McKeown's uh, team in UCD. He's head of engineering there for the project. Um, Ireland's first ever satellite. There's a huge amount of excitement in the country. It's happening at the end of this month. Um, and I think SpaceX don't want to say the date. <laughs> I think they're, they're kind of, they, don't wanna, they don't wanna actually say it, but it's happening very, near the end of the month. Stay tuned on our Twitter and follow AirSat1 on, on Twitter. You'll find out uh, what's it, what exactly happening and if the launch goes uh, as well as we hope it will, fingers crossed. And finally, Jenny was interested in our piece on UTIs where last week we learned that a commercial litre of urine um, with no treatments, no, just it's just a screened litre of urine costs 500 pounds sterling, um, which uh, made my jaw drop. Uh, Jenny says, how do you define a chronic UTI? Well, as we learned last week, it really is just a UTI that doesn't go away um, and you, you know, most uh, UTIs you can treat and, and they disappear, but some people have repetitive and painful UTIs, which is why um, this research is so important. Uh, so thanks so much for all of your comments, uh, good and bad. Uh, if you'd like to comment on this show, you can email us at science.newstalk.com. That's it from us. And thanks again to the Dublin Royal Convention Centre, to all of the News Talk team that made this happen, Shifra O'Donovan, Jack Lawler, Ben Griffin on social, Ashing O'Connor, so Shona Ryan, Marezo Sullivan producing, Simon Keane on digital, and David Slevin live in the room on sound. That's it from us. I'm Jonathan McRae. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sundays from midday on News Talk.